Hi folks, welcome to this week's edition of the Finance Hour. The topic of this week's show is Keeping It in the Family with Yehuda Gottlieb. Yehuda Gottlieb is a General Manager Investments for the Spotlight Group Family Office. Spotlight's a privately held $2 billion Australian parent company owned by the Freed and Frayed families. They own the iconic retail brands of Spotlight and Anaconda, as well as a diverse property portfolio, including centres which house those two brands. Yehuda is the general manager of the family office, which manages the family's investments and personal affairs. The interview today gives a fascinating insight into how the ultra-high net worth make decisions about their investments, which include not only the traditional asset classes of shares and property, but also private equity, venture capital, and property development lending. There are some great lessons today about the disciplines that they apply and what you can apply for your particular situation. Of course, we have my usual segment this week in Ruben's Rant, where I talk about the ACCC attack on the bank executives. Now, please head over to iTunes, search the Finance Hour, and leave us a rate and review. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Finance Hour. This is the show where we help try and make sense of the world of business and finance and hopefully help you make better financial decisions and business decisions. My name is Ruben Zoer. I'm a financial planner and owner at Adapt Wealth Management. We're a boutique financial advice firm that work with business owners, professionals, and those planning for retirement. Now, I've been doing this podcast since about February of last year, so I welcome you to search the Finance Hour on iTunes. You can listen to any of our old podcasts. Really appreciate if you would leave us a review as well. It'll just mean that we can reach more people. Otherwise, you can go to my company website, Adapt Wealth Management, to the podcast page. Now, uh, of course, I have my usual uh, general advice warnings from the solicitor. Uh, don't trust anything we say today. Uh, we're not giving you individual stop, stock tips or how to manage your own money. Um, just be careful. If you do want to uh, put anything in place, make sure you get advice from either a financial advisor, an accountant, a lawyer. Not that I think a lawyer is going to help you much. Or you might ask your friend when he comes over for a barbecue and has a beer with you. They generally have some great tips. Now, the topic of this week's show is keeping it in the family. Uh, we have with us uh, Yehuda Gottlieb, who is the General Manager of Investments at Spotlight Group. Uh, and the topic is family offices. So what do we mean by family office? I think it's uh, a term that people don't necessarily understand. It's not the study that you have in your room at home, uh, but there is a bit more to it, and we're going to examine that with Yehuda. But before we do, it is time for Ruben's Rant. Ruben's Rant. Now, my rant this week is about the headlines in the Financial Review today, which says the ACCC, that is the Australian Competition and Consumer Body, are actually prosecuting... Uh, six of the nation's most senior bankers from ANZ, Deutsche Bank and Citigroup. And they're prosecuting them is all about uh, a share placement which they did back in 2015 for ANZ Bank. So every now and then, banks will need to raise more capital. Uh, to do that, they need to issue new shares. They generally have to go around and 
find different people to buy them, usually at short notice. They go to different fund managers, stockbrokers, and they try and get them to buy the shares. Now, it seems like it's it's pretty hazy, but it seems that there was some sort of collusion, they thought, or some kind of discussion that was inappropriate in terms of how they allocated these shares. So they got the share issue off, but um, there was some kind of inappropriate discussion or agreement that they had with them. I, I, I sort of wonder, the, the potential penalties here is up to 10 years in jail or $420,000 of fine. The banks are really going to be vigorously defending this. I look at something like this and I'm not quite sure who the victims are. Uh, you know, ANZ were issuing some shares. If people really want to buy the shares, they could buy them on, on the share market if they wanted to. I just don't get why this is such a high profile. I would have thought there's a lot of other cases in the commercial and business world that is significantly worse than this, uh, and I think it is uh, a little bit overdone. But I suppose time will tell. Okay, it's a going to take a very short break now, and then I will be back with your Huda Gottlieb. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. We are speaking today with Yehuda Gottlieb, who is the General Manager of Investments at Spotlight Group in the Spotlight Family Office, and we're looking forward to a great discussion today. Yehuda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ruben. Great to have you on. Now, Yehuda, you work in the Family Office at Spotlight Group, so why don't we start with asking you, what in fact is a Family Office? Yeah, so um, Family Offices are something that are relatively new in Australia, but very big overseas, particularly in North America. But um, they're building and, and growing rapidly across the world. And what happens there is generally when you've got a, a family that is, um, you know, amass significant wealth over time, they um, then look for functions for their, you know, for that wealth and um, usually have an office that they set up to, you know, attend their day-to-day needs. So yeah. The family office consists of um, a number of people, including, um, you know, assistants that mm-hmm. um, assist with with household matters, as well yep. as um, general treasury and and sort of day to day transactional. So things. when you say household matters, what everything from paying their bills or all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, as you can imagine, there's, they've got a number of different interests. Yeah. Um, personally, and. Yep. Um, you know, there's people on staff there to, to pay the bills, to make sure the administration is working yep. appropriately. And um, we also have a function that, that <clears throat> deals specifically with, um, you know, day-to-day transactions of the family. Yeah, so, yeah. So is it is it to do uh, with their business operations or with their with their investments generally? So generally we, we span from, from all day-to-day operations, whether that be personal, business, um, you know, so or pleasure. So really, anything that that needs monitoring or mm-hmm. um, we we look at um, as a family office. My function as well is pretty key for the family, which is focusing particularly on investments only. So yep. we look at um, the wealth that has been created and and how we can sustain that for not only the next generation but for many generations into the future. Yep. So that works hand in hand with the other parts of the family office in terms of managing the day to day, but also you know thinking strategically about the long term about yeah. you know the building the building and sustaining the wealth of the family yeah so your uh your role is specifically in the spotlight group yes so f- the freed and frayed families so it's specifically the family office there do you want to just give us our listeners a bit of an idea of the scope or the size of the spotlight group uh and where you sort of fit in yep 
So uh, the Spotlight Group is, you know, is a bit unique in terms of having a family office while they're still run an operating business. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the typical, you know, mode of formation of these offices are um, you have a family that's that's grown a business over time and they've had a yep. liquidity event, so they right. sell that so business. Sold. Yep. And now they don't have that business anymore that's generating the cash and they look right. to set up an office that just invests. Right. Um, the Spotlight Group or the, the Freed and Freed family, they still have their business. Their business is Spotlight, which I'll go into a, a shortly. Yeah. Um, but they've also... Um, you know, established a family office as well because they recognise the need of thinking strategically into the future about yeah. their investments and their family. Yeah. So the business itself was started by two brothers in the late seventies. Yeah. A, um, it started off in the markets. Um, it was Reuben Freed and Maury Freed. Reuben was originally involved, helping his mother in the stalls in the markets, yeah. and they grew from there into. Um, you know, one store and then two stores and then multiplied over mm-hmm. the, ne- the next few decades to now they've got over 150 stores, spotlight yep. stores yep. across Australia, New Zealand and Asia. So um, that that in particular has been, you know, a, a really a successful yeah. retail business that's stood the test of time. It's, um, you know, it's almost a category killer. They, they sort of work in haberdashery and party yeah. and... Um, you know, bed linen, and, and they and they they've got their shops uh, or the retail stores are not just in Australia; they're New Zealand as well, in Asia as well. Or yeah, New Zealand, yeah. Asia, um, yeah. So Singapore and Malaysia. Yeah. So um, you know, so that's the main business. That's the main business. Yeah. 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 Excellent. In uh, the, the in terms of the family interest, they also in the two thousand they started a uh, a secondary brand which is called Anaconda. Oh, so of course, yes. They, you know, spotlight appeals. Um, is quite appealing to the female market, mm-hmm. um, and Anaconda is more of a, a male skew, so mm-hmm. focuses on camping and outdoor wear, and that's grown in Australia to about fifty stores. Um, that's that's solely in Australia, no, no New Zealand or Asia mm-hmm. focus on that. And um, you know, while that's been in quite a competitive industry, there, there's lots of so for Spotlight, there's not many competitors that can yeah. do everything. Whereas in Anaconda, there's you know you've got your Katmandu's and mm. um, there's quite a few listed entities there yeah. as well who, who operate in the space. But um, you know it's a really phenomenal business. So, so obviously a business of that size, I mean, it could easily become a publicly listed company, couldn't it? I mean, yes. it certainly got the scale to do that. But uh, and that's something that you see, I guess, a lot of business owners ha- or how they exit. It's not a lot, but but a, a good portion if they get to that size. Is that something that? You know, they would ever consider, or I mean, you never know. You can never say never, but but you know, it stayed in the family hands for a long period of time. Yeah, well, I can't speak for the family, and yeah. um, you know, there's uh, there's boards in place that make those decisions, but yeah. um, I can only speak sort of anecdotally, and, and yeah. I know how passionately the family still feel about the business. Yeah. So, um, you know, Ruben passed away a number of years ago, and his yeah. son Zach um, stands. In his place and yeah. represents his family in the business interests, and yeah. um, they're really passionate. Yeah, they still love passionate. it. Um, yeah. You know, they live and breathe it. So I can't. Yeah. You know, seeing that in someone else's hands would actually. I think yeah. I just can't see that happening. Yeah, fair and, and Being okay with that. Okay, so the family office then uh, effectively looks after their their family interests. There are also, as I understand it, other family offices. The most prominent one I can think of is the Meyer family office, which I understand started uh, with the Meyer family themselves, but then offered their services to other families. So they become like an advisory firm for others. Can you, is that, 
Is that when you talk about what's happening in Europe, is that a common thing as well where you'll have a family office that can actually service multiple groups? Yeah, so we've um, that is a model for family offices. So, mm. um, you know, there are family offices that start off as single family offices and, and invest in the capability to understand the asset classes and, yeah. and tend to the needs of the family. Mm. And, you know, they're usually typically in the Maya case as well, they're, they're, Represented by entrepreneurs by mm. nature who who have made a lot of money and, and recognise the an opportunity. Yeah, so they're saying, well, if we're doing all this capability for ourselves, there's other families that would want to um, take these services as well. Yeah, and they recognise there that there's a there's an opportunity there, and they they exploit that in the market and and really provide a fantastic service. Mm. So we, in terms of us, the the Spotlight family, we've sort of discussed that as a strategy. Should we, you know, go down that multi-family um you know family office mm-hmm. type route and we've decided we we serve the needs of our family we're a single family office yeah and it serves our purpose better if we focus internally and, and mm-hmm. leverage all our capabilities for ourselves rather yeah. than offering it to the market for a fee yeah but we have we have sort of gone down that journey as in terms of offering opening up the family office slightly yeah and um, we've started a fund in which yep. external investors can invest alongside us. In okay, well, I th- let's touch on that um, just a little bit later. Um, but yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So just to understand then your journey, obviously you don't do a, a university course, you know, about family offices. So can you just tell us a little bit about uh, about your background? I don't know what did you study at uni? You know, what where was your career path to get to to where you are now? Yeah, so. Um, I certainly didn't think I'd end up in the family office space, but um, straight after uni, uni I studied um, commerce, so accounting, yep. and business systems, so um, IT systems, and uh, my first job out of uni was in management consulting. So um, I worked for a firm called Accenture, which spun yep. out of the old Anderson Consulting, yep. and I worked there for their strategy division. So I was really um, interested in businesses, interested in understanding sort of what made them tick and mm-hmm. ways to improve businesses. So we, our sort of division went out to businesses that were struggling and assisted them in, you know, either, either right-sizing or, or setting a strategy for them to grow in the future. Um, I did that for about three and a half years. There was a, quite a bit of travel involved there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, You could do that before getting married and kids. No, I was already married and <laughs> oh, you kids. So oh, you did? That was, that was one factor that... <laughs> That sort of was limiting there, yeah. But also, it was very, um, it was quite a creative role. So, um, it was very much, you know, finding a problem and then trying to come up, come up with some sort of operating operating yeah. framework to, to to frame that problem and then provide a solution and testing that. And, and it was quite um, iterative. And I'm, I'm more of an analytical person. I sort yeah. of like an answer. I don't like sort of mm. the, the the more creative type. Yeah. I wanted an yeah. analytical answer. So um, at that time, um, I sort of knew a few people in the investment banking sort of mm-hmm. world, which was more modeling, model driven, and yeah. you know outcome focused. So yeah. I sort of made a transition over to there, operating sp- spreadsheets, operating <laughs> spreadsheets, doing modeling. Yeah. So um, I moved to a firm called Ostock, which was oh, a yeah. mid market listed firm, and we did um, sort of capital raisings and yeah. M and A um, yeah. transactions for small listed companies. Yeah. So um, that was really interesting in terms of being involved with the markets. There's always mm-hmm. a buzz there. This, you know, every day you go in and you look at the screens and things are moving. And yeah. Dealing with with businesses raising money was was quite exciting. 
And um, so it was just with publicly listed companies generally. Yeah, yeah. Generally, that that was yeah. publicly listed. Yeah, but it's interesting. One of the sorry, we're diverging a little bit, but you see a lot of those sort of small companies that are listed, and sometimes I look at them and I just think, you know, why are they actually listed? The, the amount of cost that must be to comply with all the rules and everything. It just seems to me like there must be a huge number of companies that shouldn't even be listed. Yeah, yeah. Well, some companies are there because, you know, they have illusions of grandeur. Right, they're right. A bit, they're, a bit, they're a bit premature. Other and that's companies, how they raised money. That's how they raised yeah. money. So that's a that's a, a capital-raising source. Yeah. And, and I think at that time when I was involved, it was – GFC was happening. So it was 2008, yeah. 2010. So sort of almost the aftermath of, of – the, the GFC, but it hadn't really hit Australia yet. So mm. there was still a bit of hub- hubris around the market yeah. and, and people yeah. still could raise like that. Yeah. Whereas I think post-GFC, it was much, much tougher. And that's where, you know, back then, small, you know, micro, micro-listed micro companies could raise, you know, $5, $10 million yeah. quite easily. Yeah. But then it's it a just got so hard. It is interesting, though, when you think about it. I think, you know, the nature of the stock market you know, has kind of changed. I mean, the stock market was really there to help people raise capital for businesses. And now it seems that 95% of what's talked about is actually trading these shares between different owners, you know. So it's sometimes I think we've ac- we actually lose sight of what the stock market was for because everyone gets so obsessed with, you know, share prices moving up and down and just trading between individuals rather than the company actually raising money. Yeah, yeah. And there's... You know, even on the higher end, there's so many passive funds now involved that, mm. you know, they're, they're, they're particularly just to trade the stock and not yeah. you know, for, the, for the long term or to, mm. to assist the company to meet its needs. It's really right. just there as a, yeah. you know. They're just there to capture investment returns for, correct. for investors. Correct. Yeah. So it manipulates even the underlying of why they're there. So mm. there's, a, there's a, lot, um, a lot behind the markets. Mm. And, and I think that's where some, of, some investors can really get burnt mm. because they don't understand... Or, or potentially haven't haven't understood the full breadth of who's actually investing in the stock and why mm, and mm. the the different um, you know I guess the different interests that people have behind investing in the stock. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. So you moved on there from Ozstock. Is that when you ended up at Spotlight Group, or was there another? No, there was another. There was the another way? stuff. So <laughs> um, uh, the GFC did hit, and um, it hit Ozstock pretty hard. We we actually yeah. got sold twice, and the markets dried up at that point so the public mm. markets were mm. it was very difficult to do deals yeah raise funds m a basically to, to mergers and acquisitions yeah th- that dried up so um i actually moved to a firm called wingate which oh, yes. is a um sort of a, a you know a boutique investment bank as well mm-hmm. um who put investment products together for their um their group of investors and yeah. specifically there i was in the, the property property finance space so mm-hmm. non-bank lending yeah so there we we sourced and structured uh, deals which were basically lending deals against mm. property mm. um which was a, a back then was quite a burgeoning space it was yeah. really um you know quite a small team that i joined mm. and um it really grew phenomenally in the last mm. few years and and really hasn't stopped so yeah well we we're just talking about before and i've spoken about particularly now with the royal commission with banks uh, there's now a lot of pressure on them there has been for a couple of years to really restrict their lending particularly for property particularly for interest only loans uh, and from what i hear anecdotally even over the last few weeks it's just more and more difficult to borrow money from the bank so i imagine that um you know different intermediaries that can kind of bypass that 
significant compliance and uh, scrutiny that's on the banks. Maybe groups like Wingate are just in a much, you know, have a much bigger market share now because the banks aren't doing deals. Yeah, well, when when I joined, we had thought that there was just a small window, and we were really um, sort of first mover, so we had quite quite a big advantage over the market. But um, at that time, we thought maybe after two years, we'd move into something else. But it's really only grown since, and there's been a yeah. number of other providers that have come up in the market. And mm. that's and, and I know we'll touch on on our fund later, but that's really what's um, driven the creation of our fund is mm. the number of um, providers in the market and potentially um, investors out there who may be confused between the offerings of the different um, providers. So, mm. but I know we'll touch on that later. So, yeah, let's get back to, to my still on my journey. Um, I actually Mori is one of the investors in in sort of the Wingate products. Sure, and. Um, you know, I was there. For, I was there for about three years, and he asked me to to come across and manage, um, or start up and manage his family office. Yeah. So, oh, so that was the start of the family office, then, or well, the family had always been investing yeah. in um, you know various products, but they really hadn't formalised it into a, a family office structure. It was more, um, you know, due to their size and scale, yeah. investment opportunities kept coming to them, and they and they did invest over the journey. Yeah. But this was really about forming a structure and a strategy, and 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 setting up the family office as a mm almost a standalone business unit for the yeah. for the group. So I think then what, um, I guess what might be of interest to the listeners is um, effectively family office is generally for the ultra high net worth individuals. And I guess what might be of interesting insight is how do, how do they, th- how do the ultra high net worth think about investing as compared maybe to the average, to the, you know, to the general public. And I guess what can the, um, you know, what can the general public actually learn from that as yeah. well, so so I mean, could you could you give us some insight as to you know what what is actually different in the decision making in the work that, that would go for ultra high net worth individuals as opposed to everyone else? Is yeah. it just is it just more opportunities available? Is it you know more analysis required, or what's the difference? So I think um, one difference is the the I guess maybe the size and scale of opportunities that are mm-hmm. offered to ultra high net wealth so you'll see a lot of deals that that never actually come to market mm. um as an offering that's that's packaged or structured up it's more someone would call up with an idea or an opportunity and then it's up to to myself or the family office then to, to structure that idea mm. and give it a mm. bit of uh you know put some commercials around that and what a deal may look like so could that be anything like someone for example wanting to start like a business to raise money for a business or is that the kind of thing that might that might come yeah, so it might be um, someone with a business idea and um, they might come with a particular set of terms and then um, the family office is there to really protect the interests of the, of the family and see if those terms are commercial mm-hmm. and potentially restructure them and, and do a deal that, that might look very different to the deal that actually came in. Yeah. So that, yeah. so my role will be to, to structure that up, negotiate that, mm-hmm. work with the family to ensure that their interests are uh, protected and aligned with mm-hmm. those people that have come with the opportunities. Whereas, um, you know, potentially some of, you know, even wholesale or, or retail investors would just see an opportunity once all that negotiation has already taken place. Right, right. Um, and the benefit of, of, you know, the ultra high net wealth individual is that they've got the, the size and scale and, mm-hmm. you know, to some degree money talks, right? So, right. So they're, so the, they're, they're the enabler. They may be in a better negotiating position. Correct. Uh, than others, yeah. Correct. And that, and that individual who came to you with that deal, he can then decide... 
I, I do want to do that deal or I don't want to do that deal. Yeah. And that, that, you know, we can decide mm-hmm. that. And that, that applies whether it's a new business opportunity or whether it's a lending opportunity or mm-hmm. whatever, whatever might come through, through the yeah. doors. Yeah. The other is that um, there might even be providers that have structured a deal and might come to you and, and someone who, a retail or wholesale investor might say, that's the deal, take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Whereas as an ultra high net wealth, if you're creating the deal, you've got some more leverage then to yeah. potentially negotiate some of the yeah. terms of, the, of that deal yeah. um, in your favor. And, and once again, that provider can then say, I, I, I want to do that deal or mm-hmm. I don't want to do the yeah. deal. Um, the other thing is the, the way we actually make decisions is, is structured slightly differently in that... Um, we have a formal investment committee. So mm-hmm. um, I, while I look at all the deals and I'll structure them and I'll present them, I don't actually make any final decisions as to yeah. what the family invests in. Yeah, I've got a, There's a process that I've got to follow and I've got a weekly meeting um, with an investment committee, which is made up of family members as well as non-family members yeah. who come in every week and sit and review all the deals and opportunities that I put together. Yeah, And then they decide whether we invest mm. in it, whether mm. we don't, or whether... Yeah. I go back and do a little bit more work to right. find out, you know, some more. So it's a much more formalised uh, investment yeah. investment structure yeah. in terms of how those decisions are made. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. but are there still uh, obviously, you know, the sort of investments you're talking about there are, you know, those private deals, maybe special property deals or the like. Is there still also a portion of sort of plain vanilla type investments, shares, fixed interest, that sort of thing, or is that, or is that sort of not even? not even considered no that that that's definitely part of the portfolio so yeah. we we take we take a top-down approach and set a strategy and yeah it's it's um the family itself have a number of different entities so mm. there could be that we've got super funds that we manage investments for we've got um children we've got grandchildren mm-hmm. um we have investment entities so every every um entity has their own investment objectives so depending on the investment objective we could look at, um, you know, some of your plain vanilla shares, and we've got advisors that that advise us on that, um, or bonds, or, or you know, any 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 asset class. Mm-hmm. Um, we look to to invest our cash to you know to a portfolio, and then obviously there's a bucket there of um, you know more opportunistic deals that we can then say, all right, well, um, you know, we've deployed the cash into the shares and, and the bonds. Um, we've bought some property, mm-hmm. and now we want to do some opportunities that are really going to give us a chance to to grow to yeah. grow some wealth. What's uh, I think interesting that you've touched on is the uh, you know the idea of that of their family office to you know to to preserve the wealth over generations, and that's certainly something that uh, you know something that's always top of mind, and I'm thinking about more and more in terms of how I engage you know, with my clients and how I engage with their children, uh, and it's always a um, you know, it's always interesting because I deal with a lot of clients on their estate planning and it's a question of, you know, when, when we get to like the parts of how they want their assets to pass, you know, often it's going to be quite simple. It just goes to their children and then they're the ones who make the decisions of where, what happens going forward. Um, and there's always been that, you know, the one saying that, you know, you can't rule from the grave. So don't try and put too many restrictions on what the next generation does. But it sounds to me like... Uh, you know, the family office has got a more sophisticated approach than that in terms of what happens to the next generations. Can you explain explain that? Because it sounds like it's a focus. Yeah, well, we um, it's an interesting debate and we, we have it all the time. In When you're dealing with an, with an ultra-high net wealth, they're obviously um, very smart and they're 
um, aggressive in terms of risk taking, mm-hmm. and that's the way they've made you know significant amounts of wealth by concentrating in a particular asset. So for the family I represent, um, that was in in retail. They, yeah, they they didn't diversify and, and look at a number of different investments. Mm-hmm. They kept investing back in their mm-hmm. retail business, and that that's what grew it over generations. Mm-hmm. So it's quite difficult then to to you know put on your university hat if you like and talk about diversification and talk mm. about the next generation and that's not what made them actually successful correct it, yeah. w- it wasn't a diversification strategy it was yeah. concentrating <laughs> yeah. and and we have that argument all the time and and you know there's no right answer yeah um and you know i get told well if you diversify well then you're just getting what what you're getting the market return yeah whereas i want a more you know i want to outperform the market and therefore yeah. i'm going to concentrate but that gets more difficult as you transition in generations away mm. from a particular founder with a you know set of um, risk parameters that have been you know toned over time. Yeah. Versus um, you know third, fourth generations who may or may not be involved in that decision making mm. process. So that's what we're thinking of as a family office is to set the strategy um, and put in some parameters with some you know broad um, you know broad sort of gateways for each asset class mm. to ensure that we can then dial up or dial down depending on um, you know market conditions and the, yeah. the needs and wants of that generation so yeah. if it you know if we're aiming for a particular objective so it might be a a, um, a particular set of cash flows that the, that that generation needs mm-hmm. and wants then we may need to, to tailor that asset allocation yeah. to deliver those returns. but it also seems to me like it's you know there's a little bit of a parallel to the to the farm right and the farmers end up with like you know they'll come to when a estate is going to comprise a massive asset of the farm, right? One of the two of the kids might be involved in it, other kids may not be, and that's the main asset of the biz- uh, which is of the family. And then the challenge is, is then how when that's a case, and when maybe someone in the family wants to continue on the farm, how do you equalise up to make sure that everyone gets their fair share? Not everyone's going to want to stay in the business long term. So I imagine that also presents presents as challenges. Yeah. So we've. Um that that is a challenge, and that's something that's that's also I failed to mention that also part of the family office is that mm. um, you know almost the legacy and and you know keeping uh, the next generations together, but ensuring that those members of that next generation can then mm. um, follow the path that that they would like to do, whether yeah. that's within the business and, yeah. or without, and that that requires some um, you know something written down on paper. It requires yeah. a constitution. It requires. Mm. Um, it's got to be more formal otherwise you just you open it up to you've got to take care of those things early mm. on in the piece rather mm. than you know letting mm. it fester and that yeah and i suppose you if you division. get if you get if family members get involved sort of early on understand you know when they're i suppose a bit younger then you can prob- possibly educate them for longer term rather than you know hitting a certain age and then getting you know all this capital and yeah. it's like how many ferraris can i buy <laughs> yeah yeah well that's that's the education piece and i think yeah. Um, you know that's that 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 happens in. We, we've, I've seen a number of different families in in my work um, with spotlights. So I've gone and, and visited other families, and certain certain families do it better than others. Yeah, but, sure. but that's really about. Um, I think there's a high level of education yeah. and um, you know emulating the mm. founder and how strong are those values come through yeah. to the next generation. Just just briefly before we talk about the investments, I imagine there's also a charitable trust as well, uh, which obviously you know supports the community, both the Jewish and non-Jewish community, substantially. 
Um, is that is the charitable uh, trust part of the family office, or is that or is that managed separately? So that's managed um, by Dahlia Freed, who's um, Ruben, the founder's his, his daughter. Yeah. Um, I manage the the investments, so the right. investment pool of that yep. of the foundation. So I make recommendations as to what the fa- what the corpus should be investing in, mm-hmm. but not the in terms of allocation. That's um, you know the family decides yeah. where they allocate yeah. the capital. The, there. That decision making is done is yeah. done separately. And we've obviously got um, different investment objectives for that pool of capital as to yep. some others. So we we that's generally low risk. We've got a corpus yeah. of capital there that we want to protect and and yep. grow, but we don't want to take undue risk with that because yeah. obviously we want to still continue to, to give out the dividends as yep. charitable. Okay, so, so let's just go back a little bit to what you were saying in terms of uh, the difference that, that family offices tend to get these sort of bigger deals coming through or opportunities. And it seems to me like with a lot of uh, a lot of investments, what will happen is, is there may be you know someone at the top that kind of you know structures these deals. Uh, and, you know, so... You know, there might be a very high net worth person who gets a big chunk of it, and then they also, you know, then provide the opportunity for other investors to have a to have a piece of it as well down the track, down the line. Is that is that uh, does that occur with your sort of operations? That the opportunity for people to other people to invest alongside alongside the family office. So we. We we do have an opportunity for for investment with alongside the family office. Um, in terms of, it depends on really on a deal by deal basis. So, there are some deals um, in which we will take the, the full allocation that's provided to us yeah. um, by those investment providers and decide to hold it because we think it's um, a deal that um, you know meets our needs at that point in time. Yeah. But there are then other deals in which we'd like to participate, but for whatever reason we only want to. You know, put a nominal amount of capital into yeah. maybe it might be a, a fund that we're just testing and really trying to get an understanding of how they operate um, and with that there'll be others that, that sit alongside that mm-hmm. um, our particular I guess our particular focus or expertise where where the family would has developed the deepest capability is in that property finance or non-bank yeah. lending um, you know asset class so in that particular asset class we we think we've got um, you know, we've got eight years of investment experience while that, that you know, the industry has been rising. We we haven't suffered any losses and we've mm-hmm. dealt with um, all of the largest investment um, providers in the market and we've developed deep relationships with them. So with that, we've, we, just, we started a fund at the beginning of last year, mm-hmm. which offered wholesale investors opportunities to invest alongside us in those deals that, that we picked. So... Mm-hmm. We've raised about eighty-five million dollars in a in a fund, of which the family makes up thirty million dollars of mm-hmm. that. And we've invested. It's sort of a rolling fund. So as funds come back, we then reinvest it, mm-hmm. but always in in debt products that are backed by property. Yeah. Typically, first mortgage products. Yeah. And um, sort of, we're earning about a nine point seven percent return. Yeah. And um, yeah, we we do take fees off that. Yeah. But, um, we saw that as an opportunity to really um, capitalise on on a, on a really a, a need in the market mm. to to offer these types of products to investors who probably um, don't understand them or don't have the capability set or the mm-hmm. the size and scale that that we do. So you become like a, a fund manager to an extent, yeah, like quasi fund manager. Yeah, so we, we were yeah. doing that for the family in yeah. any event, and um, we thought 
we had a need within the family to to equalize some of the uh the second and third generation holdings yeah and in order to equalize them we thought well if that's a good product that we could equalize the second and third generation there might be a market that sits alongside mm. that that would want to co-invest alongside us yeah. and um we think we've found that market we've got a lot of um self-managed super fund investors yeah. um we have a lot um a lot of people from the community and outside the community financial advisors have have provided us with you know quite a good steady stream mm-hmm. and um we think at at that level we don't we don't ask anyone for their for their full portfolio but we say there should be a part in in a mm. portfolio mm. for um good high yielding debt product mm. in this market mm. and if you don't want to make a particular bet and you don't have a, the strong capability set well then invest alongside a family officer that's looking mm. at it doing it managing it every single day mm. of the week um and allow us to make those decisions for you and provide you with a, with so, a great return. So it's really interesting that so much of the investment opportunities in that property funding space, and, and I think you know we we talked about it before about how the banks, you know, is it really just because the banks are just making it so much harder for people to lend? Because I'm I'm guessing normally if people can get borrowing from the banks, I'm guessing normally it would be at a lower interest rate than mm. what they would from from other sort of second tier or. Lenders, would, would, is that true? Yeah, that's true. So when I started at Wingate, um, probably six or seven years ago, we were doing a lot of the non-bank lending happened in the mezzanine lending space. So yeah. that was um, people, a developer would go out and get money from the bank. Yeah. Um, then they would, they wouldn't want to put all their money into a project, so they'd get a little bit more finance from from a Wingate or, mm-hmm. or others, and we would sit behind the bank. What we've found though over time is that the banks started shutting off those loans and that's even even the part before that mezzanine even the part before yeah. so they they really strict i think a lot of the media had a lot to do with it as well mm. as um you know apra being so apra the 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 prudential Super, regulator yeah. um coming in and stepping in and saying well we see the housing markets overheated we really want to pull back mm. um a little bit and, and put in a bit of controls also this is another factor came in is due to the supply of um of, of Asian capital coming into the market yeah. as well. So um, there was more demand for property. And yeah. so people were building more but weren't able to get the finances easily. Correct. So yeah. so they there was no no ways of getting um no ways of getting bank financing but, mm. but prices were still going up because there was right. different factors still plenty uh, of demand. the demand. So yeah. um developers thought, well, if I'm paying you know, six percent for these first mortgages, but now I'm paying ten or eleven percent mm. and the interest Bill is not the largest line item on my cost. Um, right. On my cost, it's really the the construction costs is the is the largest part. Well, I'll still make a margin from this project, even though I'm paying higher finance. So right, and also because they might not be borrowing money. It's not like they're borrowing money for long term. It might be for what twelve to eighteen months Correct. while they're yeah yeah. So we, we we've done a lot of deals um, where it might be a, a non resident, so potentially a Chinese buyer yeah. who's bought. Um, a site and then actually can't get bank funding because mm-hmm. banks will not will not fund them and they said well, we need it for six to 12 months to settle the land and then we're going to we'll work out how we get construction funding or partner mm-hmm. with someone or we just yeah. need a bit of time yeah so um yeah that, that, that's yeah where we see a lot it's of interesting how that you know that whole thing of the banks sort of making things tighter is flowing through the whole sort of chain you know not only in that not only in the situation that you're talking about at that that construction level but even for the you know, for the average person going to buy a property, you know, going to going to the bank and trying to get a loan, even that's getting harder. Yeah. So, so it's interesting, even even at that level, 
you know, people may start moving away from the from the bigger banks as well. But I don't know. The question is, is at that sort of residential level whether there are different people who will lend significantly more. I'm not sure. So there are a lot of providers that have come in the market who have presented us with opportunities to to invest alongside them, yeah. like um, a lot of the US private equity firms like um, Blackstone and KKR have then yeah. made uh, – you know, partnerships with either Peppers or, oh, right, with or other non-bank lenders. loan, non-bank yeah. lenders, that, and and they'll charge you. Um, where the banks might charge you four to five percent interest rate for a loan, they might charge you six to seven or six to eight. Yeah, and the you know they're a little bit more flexible, mm. but um, where we sit is more at the you know ten to twelve percent rate, but yeah. more lending to developers who right. want to get projects over right. the line. And they, and and as you say, if they if they're lending at relatively short term. It's not such a big issue if they were if they were you know getting a home loan that was ten to twelve percent for the next thirty years, that's really significant. But yeah. if it's like a if it's a shorter period, it's not as big a deal. Actually, it's interesting. I was just looking at um, in the financial review. Chart, I don't know if you saw uh, it was an interview with Harry Trugerboff, and he was just talking about how uh, how how with the banks, you know, they're they're turning the screws so hard on the average sort of mum and dad purchaser or investor and looking at their expenses really really closely before giving the loan and he actually makes a point and he says you know people once they borrow money to buy a house like they'll cut back on their other expenses after that so they can keep their house that you can't just measure it based on what on what they were doing before because people will will want to hold on so he was he as you expect he was very critical of the uh of the banks yeah i think that's what um was found because w- another risk with this lending is, is settlement risk. So, mm. um, you know, potentially would borrowers actually follow through? So they, they put a deposit on, right, on the 12 property. to 18 yeah. months before, and then will they actually get financing? So right. assuming they can get financing, then, yeah, you're right. People will, will cut back the other expenditure mm. in order to, to mm. you know, to come through with a house, um, you know, an acquisition of the house. Um and and that's but there is, that might be different to other markets around the yeah, world. But there is risk that people yeah could put down a deposit and then they haven't applied for the finance. Then when the time comes, they can't actually get it. Yeah. But wouldn't that be the case with some of the uh, you know, if you're funding some developments? Isn't that a risk that you'd face as well? Like even if you've got those contracts signed, that people might not be able to settle. Yeah. So we've found um, that that is a risk. Mm. And um, you know, from speaking to the different providers and actually being in deals ourselves. We note that there are some settlements that fall over, mm. but generally the market's still buoyant enough that they can be sold again either right. at that price right. or a slightly slight premium. Mm. So therefore you've made your deposit and you make you, you sell it again essentially. Mm. And and you've got that leeway then to discount the stock if you really want to. to yeah, because you've already got the deposit. 15%. Yeah. Because you're only you're not you're lending probably against fifty percent of the value mm. or sixty percent of the value of the, the end unit. So yeah. there's there's still a bit of leeway there, and the market's still good enough. So you haven't seen that become a really increasing problem. No, we're we're, we're monitoring it. Mm. Um, we think it could be a potential issue down the line. Yeah, but we haven't seen but it today, flow through. No, no. Okay, well, we're coming towards the end of our discussion today, and one of the things that I always uh, ask my guests is for their top three tips. So I'd like to, from your perspective, in being in a family office. I'd like you to give your top three tips uh, for people when evaluating uh, investment decisions. So these are uh, the things that we look at at Spotlight and the things that I've learned from, you know, from the management and founders as well. So the key thing that, that we look for and um, Spotlight is alignment of interest. So 
um, conflict is 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 a big word mm. at Spotlight. So we look at um, you know the investment providers or the people we're you know sitting across the table with, and you know we try to to minimise conflict wherever possible. Mm. So we want to ensure the guys we invest with or the deals we're investing into, we're all aligned in terms of we're going into a deal um, knowing either the exit or there's you know skin in the game by the the person on the opposite side of the table to know that that if we feel hurt and the deal doesn't work out then they feel hurt as mm, well mm-hmm. so that's that's the key thing we look at um the second thing is um you know being clear on your goals or objectives so you know always have an understanding of what you want to get out of the deal have mm. an understanding of um the 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 underlying and, and what you're trying to to do what you're trying to achieve and um you know that way if you're in the middle of a deal and you don't you get emotionally invested mm. in the deal obviously as you work through it um you've got those goals written down and you can say yeah. i've achieved that goal now it's time to yeah. to get out of that deal yeah. or to, to move yeah. on yeah um and third is really about ensuring the risk reward is appropriate so mm. um you know being in the privileged position that i am is that we can tailor deals to our advantage so always look at what the return is going to be, what the reward is, have a clear understanding of what the risk is and make sure that, that doesn't you know, they all marry up, that the risk reward is appropriate and if it's not, try to negotiate a better deal. Mm. And if you can't do that, well either walk away or you know, yeah. decide you're gonna do the deal on those terms. But Yeah. Terrific. All right, you know, well thanks very much for your for your time. If uh, if people want to find out a little bit more about what you do, where can they go? Um it's an interesting one. They can, <laughs> they can Google Valara, V-A-L-A-R-A. Yep. Um, that's Valara Capital. Um, so that's that's like the that's the investment arm. That's that's the investment arm. That's, that's the fund. And yep. through there, you can you can reach out. There's a um, you know sort of info box. You can email me there, and then I'll, I'll get the email, and we can start a conversation. All right, terrific. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, It's been a a fantastic discussion. And thank you to our listeners for listening. Uh, As I said, if you do get a chance, please head over to our iTunes page, searching the Finance Hour, and leave us a review. Or you can drop me an email at advice at adaptwealth.com.au. Let me know if you're enjoying the podcast or if you've got any ideas for future topics or someone who you think uh, may be a good interviewee. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again next week.